Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's Radio, B-E-E-T-S dot com, code DEAL. With your host... Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Welcome to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Normally, after the intro music on Herd Tell, we would go right into what we call the billboard. I would run down the show, let you know what's going on in the program, and jump right into it. Uh, because of the way Herd Tell goes out on terrestrial radio with our friends at Big Talker Network and also to the podcasting platforms and YouTube, it has to be out by a certain time of the day, which means the program we prepared for this Thursday, February the 24th, was already done in the books when the Russian invasion of Ukraine kicked off uh, overnight. So we just want to acknowledge at the beginning of the program, we're aware that that happened. We will cover that story. We've talked about Ukraine just about every day for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it is a developing and breaking story. We will wait until we have the facts on the ground, but Russia has invaded Ukraine and we will be covering it. Uh, I'll defer you to our friend uh, Molly McHugh's tweet. I think she has good advice here. Don't amplify content you can't put in context. Watch, but don't inflate perception of supposed Russian might and dominance. Don't contribute to panic or speculation. It wastes time and consumes focus needlessly. Support Ukraine and their bravery. And remember that no outcome is certain. Outcomes are shaped with perception and will, creativity, and diligence. Know that more can be done and can still be done in the future. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. I will repeat here what I said on social media. God, do I hate war. My first prayer is for peace, as is my second, my third, my 33,000th, and my one millionth prayer. 
It's for peace. But when that fails, my prayer is that the defenders stack the bodies of the invaders until the aggressors lose all desire for the war that they forced upon other people. And then we can have peace. We stand with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people now under assault by Vladimir Putin and his forces. The Hertel program we had prepared for you will follow right after this. Ah, Hertel Show, welcome back. We're glad you're with us on this Thursday, February the 24th, year of our Lord, 2022. Rolls on, almost done with February. March is bearing down on us without stopping it's all going to be okay, folks. This too shall pass. Thank you for spending time with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thrilled that you give us the most important thing you have, your time. We're not going to waste a bit of it turning down the noise of the news cycle today on a couple different stories. Uh, we're going to talk about President Biden has his short list of SCOTUS nominees, Supreme Court nominees. There's three of them. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Also, an update to a story we covered a couple days ago, True Social. That's the Trump network. The rollout didn't go good. Now we know just how bad it really was. We'll get to the bottom of that. Also, on the program today, one of our favorite guests, uh, Eric Garcia. He is a reporter for The Independent, also writes at MSNBC, has a great book out that he wrote on autism. We'll talk about all that with him, but he's going to focus in on something he's been writing about, uh, Latinos and Latino cultures. Now, the census data tells us Latinos are one of the fastest growing demographic groups in America. It's also a diversifying demographic group. He's going to talk about some of the stereotypes and some things that have been happening in the media that don't portray them accurately, especially since we're talking about them in a political sense a lot. We need to understand how Latinos themselves view themselves and some of the issues involved. And also, we're going to ask him about the behind the scenes of reporting on Congress, how that information actually gets to you, not just covering the news. We want to explain to you how you get the news so that you can understand and discern your time. Eric Garcia, always love talking to my buddy. Appreciate him taking time on the show today. Uh, but we're going to start with a little bit of politics. Um, now, this is a political season, not only the midterms bearing down on us, but the 2024 presidential election, which means we're going to have all kinds of nonsense from a whole lot of people who think they ought to be president come 2024. Today, we're going to pick on Republican Senator Rick Scott. Now, Rick Scott is also the chairman of the NRSC, uh, the senatorial campaigning arm for the Republican Party. He is, of course, senator out of Florida, former governor down there. Uh, he thinks he's going to be president someday. He's probably going to run. Anyway, the reason we're talking about Rick Scott he has put out a document called, quoting, an 11-point plan to rescue America. Now, that sounds important. It's really well put together. It is 31 pages on the PDF version of it. Politico and Washington Post both reported on this. You can find it easily at either one of them. Well put together. By the time you get to the fourth page, you have a wonderful graphic of the Constitution burning uh, with holes in it and flames eating up the we the people part. And it says the hour is late for America. And there's a big, long list of buzzwordy words, lots of culture war stuff. Uh, some of it got some basis in facts. Some of it's absolutely ridiculous and a wide, broad spectrum in between. But the reason I'm picking on Rick Scott today is because as we go into this campaign season, people have different ways of getting to their campaigns. They have different reasons for trying to put themselves out there as candidates, not just for higher office. They also do this just for the fundraising and to keep their name 
in the news cycles. But we suspect uh, Senator Scott is going to be one of about a half dozen or so U.S. senators on the Republican side that's going to go off and run for president. And this is probably his uh, foot into the door of it. And we're going to prove it at the end of this. But first, let's talk about the document itself. There's 11 points here. Um, it's presented in the vein of the old contract for America. Now, whatever you thought about the contract of America back in 1994, you remember that Newt Gingrich and crew, that was a document that was poll tested. They had set it down and it was written in a way that it was ready to go into legislation when and if they took over Congress, which they did, and they passed quite a bit of it. And of course, if you remember your history, President Bill Clinton being the consummate politician he is was smart enough to see which way the wind was blowing worked with them on a lot of it and was happy to take the credit for the better parts of that that passed. Now, the contract for America was written to become legislation. The reason I have criticism for things like what Rick Scott has put back on his 11-point plan to rescue America, this is not for legislation. In fact, most of the stuff in here, if you tried to do it, would run into trouble. Either you couldn't get it passed, or if you did pass it, it would run into constitutional trouble at the courts. Um, There's some amazingly entertaining stuff in here, like we're going to eliminate all federal programs that can be done locally and enact term limits for the federal bureaucrats in Congress. Uh, Good luck with that. Uh, Congress is never going to elect uh, terms on them themselves. I'm not even sure it's a good idea. I go back and forth on it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Here's a good one. The government will never again ask American citizens to disclose their race, ethnicity, or skin color on any government form. Well, that's going to make a census real darn hard to do. Uh, Now, I know that one gets kicked around on social media, and uh, it's a good, fun buzzword to say, but you don't think about the actual implications of that, because how would you ever know when we have problems with racial issues in America? Here's a good one that's one of my pet peeves. The number one on the 11-point plan rescue America, our kids will say the Pledge of Allegiance, salute the flag, learn that America is a great country, and choose the school that best fits them. Uh, Once again, as a settled case law, you cannot make a child say the Pledge of Allegiance, nor would you want to. For the 110 billionth time, you cannot make people be patriotic. You can make them perform a ritual, but patriotism is learned, and often it's learned behavior from our betters. You're not exactly showing patriotism by making people say they love America, but we'll argue that's some other point. There's other stuff in here, soft on crime, protect, defend, and promote the American family at all costs. We will grow the American economy, starve Washington's economy, and stop socialism. That's a fun one. Good luck with that because the federal government and subsidiaries are something like 40% of the economy. Uh, You have a point there that we should probably have less federal government, but this is not the approach to attract that. It goes on and on and on. Number 11 is one of the dumber ones because it's just palpable and bomb for the internet crowd. We are Americans, not globalists. America will be dependent on no other country. Well, I hate to interrupt your time on the reading room in the kindergarten, but America is part of the global economy. We need to trade with them and they need to trade with us. There's no such thing as an uninterdependent country in the world. Now, there's a lot of things we should be more resourceful for ourselves. We should be doing much more for our own energy. We should be able to do more of our own industry, but you're not going to be able to completely get rid of it. And the thing is, with all these points is Rick Scott knows all this. So why is he putting this out? Well, the truth is down at the bottom. The very last page, those are the bullet points, by the way. They go through 30-some-odd pages of delving into this, and it gets, uh, again, it's on the spectrum from stuff where they have legitimate points and some good policy ideas to being outlandishly bat guano crazy stuff that only plays well on the Internet. But when we get to the last page, this would be page 31 on the PDF, for those of you following at home, you find out what this is really about. And I'm picking on Rick Scott today, but there's going to be a lot of other candidates do this. They'll either write a book 
or they'll put out a plan or they'll do something to get their attention so that they have a cause celeb to go and run for president. Page 31 of this thing. Go look it up yourself. We will link it in the show notes. We are in danger. There's a big quote. There's a little boy or little girl, I can't really tell, a small child on the shoulders of somebody in a U.S. Army uniform, and they're holding an American flag out like a cape, and they're on their shoulders, and they're walking through this wheat field, and there's this big quote by Rick Scott that says, we are in danger of losing our country. That's why I wrote this plan. If you agree with me, then sign your name next to mine and support it. Share with others. Send me your ideas. Together, we can rescue America. And then the bottom third of that is, of course, the QC scan code. Be first to read and sign the plan. Text America to 22044. I'm not recommending you do that. I'm just reading the copy. Or rescueamerica.com. And then you get the small print paid for by Rick Scott for Florida, not printed at government expense. Oh, don't you see what this really is? It's a campaign ad. There's no such thing as you signing for and supporting for or signing. But anytime a politician that's running for office wants you to sign something, all they want is your email list so they can send you more stuff. By the way, those email lists are currency in the campaign world. They can actually buy and sell those to other people. Did you know that? You're just fodder, your cattle when you give them your information. They just want you to sign up so that they can put you on the email list and the consultants can say how many people they got signed up and they can bombard you with fundraising from now until whenever they stop running for office. And then you still won't get it because then they got to pay their debts off and they'll bombard you some more. This entire exercise, all 31 pages of it, was to get you to send them your email address so that he can fundraise for when he runs for president. That's all it is. Unlike the Contract of America, which was poll tested, and even if you disagreed with it, they wrote it to be legislation. None of this is written to be legislation. It's just to be buzzy wordy word to throw out on the internet to get you to go sign up at rickscott.com. That's all it is. And we're picking on Rick Scott here, but there's going to be dozens of people doing this out for the presidential races. There'll be hundreds more doing it for congressional races. There'll be some for Senate races. Even in your local communities, local officials and offices are doing this now. Remember, one of the biggest businesses in politics is the campaign business. People have jobs to do this, and I want people to work. I'm not begrudging them. However you can work in this economy, go get it, and God bless. But be aware of what's happening here. We're going to see a lot of this throughout this midterm, and then as the 2024 election season really starts kicking off, you will see this more and more. Anything that ends with a call to action for you to give money, your name, or information to a candidate is campaign propaganda. This has nothing to do with restoring America. It has everything to do with Rick Scott wanting to become president. Fortunately, he's probably going to come in fifth or sixth in Iowa, and that'll be that. But we want to be aware how it works. We're going to see a whole lot more of this in the future. Democrats will do it too, by the way. And we'll call them out when they do it. Just be aware. Those little scan codes at the bottom mean something. It means they're trying to take you for a ride, folks. We'll do more Hurtel right after this. Uh, I want to follow up on a story we've been covering, and it's going to be a dominant story uh, this spring moving into summer. Uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, is going to be bringing out his Supreme Court pick in short order. He's promised it from, he probably wants to roll it out right before his State of the Union, uh, the 1st of March. Uh, the short list apparently contains three names Kentaji Brown Jackson, Leandra Kruger, and J. Michelle Childs. Uh, multiple sources. This is from CNN. 
Uh, one source familiar with the three meetings, including meetings with Jackson, who has long been considered the front runner, said the president has yet to make up his mind. Two other sources confirmed the meetings with Kruger and Childs. Biden's final decision is expected by the end of the month. The top three contenders are Jackson, who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. That has long been thought one of the stepping stones for the Supreme Court. Kruger, who sits on the California Supreme Court, and Childs, who sits on the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina. Of course, stating the obvious here, all three are women of color per the promise that President Biden made. They're also all three eminently qualified. So whatever anybody else tells you, yes, these three all have resumes to sit on the Supreme Court. Let's just get that out of the way up front. Uh, Andrew Bates, a White House spokesperson, declined to comment on the interviews Biden has conducted, but said the president continues to evaluate candidates to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. We will continue to keep an eye on this story. Um, in fact, we're going to talk to Eric Garcia about it on the program when he's on here next, since he covers Congress. Uh, I doubt this is going to be a Kavanaugh situation where it becomes a knockdown dragout. Probably more in the vein of Amy Comey Barrett, where everybody agrees that she was eminently qualified for the court. It'll turn into a bit of a partisan fight, but the nomination will go through relatively smoothly after the grandstanding of the hearings. That's how I suspect this to go. I even suspect you'll probably get a couple of Republicans vote for it. We'll see how it goes. Um, so that's that. We will continue to follow on the Supreme Court nominee story, which will be a big story for the next couple of weeks. Just prepping you for it, getting ahead of it now. That's what we try to do. We don't want to just react to the news. We want to be ready for the news that we know is coming so that we are prepared for it. Do your own homework on this one, folks. Don't take other people's word for it. We'll do more Hurtel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. One of our favorites. We love talking to him. Uh, he's the malarkey correspondent for The Independent, or so he says. That's because he covers Congress, also writes for MSNBC, a few other places. Eric Garcia, reporter extraordinaire. How are you, sir? Doing right. How you doing, my man? Fantastic, fantastic. We're going to talk about Congress a little bit later on, but I wanted to start talking about uh, Latinos because we've been talking about them in a political sense. Uh, they were a big item. They were really the headlighting item on the census data. When you look at it, largest growing group, naturally growing group, not through immigration, through births, those sorts of things. But you had to touch on the fact that it's a very diverse group. And you wrote in the independent, you took off of something where, you know, here we go again. Somebody said something stupid on the internet, uh, attacking <laughs> AOC, but you took it in an interesting direction about the diversity of Latinos and how they're perceived. Just talk about that piece for a minute for folks. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was something like so. Tucker Carlson basically called AOC an entitled white lady, and like, let, let let's start out by saying that Tucker Carlson has an agenda, and Tucker Carlson was just being a jerk. But one of the things that was interesting to me is that he called her an entitled white lady. And of course, AOC sees herself as a person of color. And the, the point to me was that a lot of, is that Tucker Carlson really, he doesn't have anyone to talk about this because even Latinos don't have a hard uh, definition of who's white and who isn't. So a lot of, uh, a lot of Latinos for example, for many years, you know, so for example, a lot of Cubanos, I think something like 85% of Cuban Amer Cubanos uh, in America are likely to, in, in 2010, they were likely to identify as white alone. And that plays a role in how they see themselves in identity and how they saw themselves in relation to the civil rights movement. Whereas like I grew up 
uh, one of my second or third cousins wrote a whole book about the history of Chicano pride in America. Uh, and then conversely there, but then also at the same time, there are Afro-Cubans and Afro-Cubans, you know, obviously are black and they obviously experience racism on the island, but they also experience racism in the United States and their experiences are uniquely different. And at the same time, but, and it's not just, but like, you know, I think a lot of people say like, well, that's just the Cubans They're you know, they came to the United States because of communism and because of the Cold War and things like that. But even if you go to some parts of the border in the Rio Grande Valley, a lot of the Hanos will say, yo no soy, de, yo no soy gringo, yo no soy Mexicano, yo soy Tejano, which is to say, I'm not white, I'm not Mexican, I'm Tejano. And even then, a lot of them will say that they're white. And like a perfect example of this is growing up, my dad told me that like his dad, my grandpa, you uh, see here this saying, uh, if you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, go back. And I thought that, that was just apocryphal until I was listening to an old Big Bell Brunzi song where that said that exact phrase. And so, and, and I, so I think that the point being is that there is, is that the entire question of who's white and who is not is one that divides Latinos constantly. And I don't think that in, we're never going to really have a hard day. We're never going to really have a hard agreement on it because if you get five different Latinos of different ethnicities, as one of, uh, as one uh, Latino activist in Arizona told me, we don't even eat the same rice. So we're not going to have the same agreements on anything else. So that, that was the point I was trying to make is that we don't even agree on who's white and who's a person of color and things like that. So Tucker Carlson sure as hell does it. So Love any, any answer that gets music and food in your explanation. That's fantastic. Look, just, just in our circle of friends that contributed to this program, look at, look at the people we talked to. We just had Mark Izagiri on talking about the Rio Grande Valley. Yes. Um, you know, you wouldn't know unless you looked at his last name and he started talking to you about it. Our friend uh, Dennis Saunders, a black man in Minneapolis. You wouldn't know he's from Puerto Rico. You know, this is a diversity yeah. thing. And I think the first thing is you don't want to assume because when you start assuming, that's when your prejudices and your priors and your ignorance starts coming out. And with the Latino group, we just talked about the census data. It's the fastest growing group. It's also the fastest diversifying group in America. This is just something we keep wanting to talk about this in politic terms. This is a massive cultural shift for the Latino people. And there's a lot of different kinds of them. Yeah. So like, I think the the 2020 census data showed that something like the number of Latinos who identify as white dropped to 20%, while the number that is selected two or more races jumped from 6% to 33%. And anybody who, and the numbers who identify as others spiked from like 37% to 42%. So, and then comparatively in like 2010, this status showed that like about 53% identify as white 53% so this is not uh this is not a set a group that's set in stone their identity shift their um how they identify how they see themselves as americans shift uh how that you, you know like you know t- t- to the point that that you mentioned that how you would never know my mom when we were growing when we were growing up we lived in florida for like 2 years my mom is mexican my mom is proudly proud to be mexican but if you saw her, she has a really light complexion. So a lot of people in Miami thought she was white or thought she was Cuban. And then, uh, and it wasn't until she, and then she's like, no, I'm Mexican. Uh, So I think that the fact that these diverging identities are constantly changing is, is, is kind of in some ways the story of America, because uh, in 1930, I didn't get to 
mentioned this in my piece, but like in 1930, the 1930 census uh, included Mexican-Americans and then it took it out. And then it wasn't until the 1970 or the 1980 census that the term Hispanic was included. So these terms are malleable. People enter in and out of them all the time because they're they're imperfect, you know, just like any term, they're imperfect and they're not going to capture everything. So it makes sense that people would, that they're, that they're hard to, you know, classify. Yeah. And we know, uh, talking to Eric Garcia, he writes for The Independent along with a lot of other things. Also has a great book we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, Certified Latino to talk about Latino issues today. Uh, We know that education and economics are a big part of how a culture changes and views itself. You were tweeting about a piece from Sarah Brown uh, from the Chronicle about Latinos feeling left out of the college race. There's a demographic and some stats now that they left college in droves during the pandemic. Uh, there's also some traditional uh, leniency in some of those demographics about going to higher education because, you know, traditionally it was a labor force or a working class thing. They're starting to spread out now. That's something else that really, really changes the perspective, both inwardly of themselves and how people outside should perceive them. Yes, absolutely. And like, you know, it's funny because Sarah and I were, were talking about this. And Sarah, Sarah's an old friend. I've known Sarah since for 10 years and we were classmates at UNC together. And like she pointed out that a lot of Latinos, if they don't, they, they, they left during the pandemic because they didn't. A lot of Latinos see college. They see college, I think, in a way that's different from a lot of other from a lot of other groups. They don't see the liberal the value of the liberal arts, the general education as much as other people do. They see it, they need to see a direct correlation between jobs and education. And I think when the pandemic hit and a lot of them, a lot of people went remotely, some people said, Well, I gotta afford to feed my family. And a lot of Latinos, of course, who are frontline workers who work in the service industry, their parents couldn't afford to pay for it. And on top of that, one, one interesting stat that I that I didn't notice was that. But I know for a fact from my own experience, a lot of Latinos don't like going into debt when it goes to when it comes to going to college. They prefer to pay as they go. Uh, you know, it was really out of the ordinary when I took out student loans to go to university, uh, and I just paid off my student loans last year uh, because I wrote a book. But that was so different from the experience. Even my cousin, uh, my cousin Andrea, she played soccer for Baylor. The way she she started playing soccer when God knows how, how young she was, but it was with the explicit expectation that she would get a scholarship to play soccer. So that's another part is that the expense of college is also prohibitive. And if they don't see that this is a worthwhile return on investment, I, it's really easy to see people drop off. A perfect example is, is my dad. My dad went to school at East Carolina University for like two years, but then he got a job. And he was just like, okay, I'm, I got a job. Like, I don't need a college degree. So he went like 30 years without having a degree until like 1990, until like 2003, he went back and got his degree online or something like that. But it's it's not like that. So I think that that's one of the other things is that Latinos don't, Latinos are leaving the workforce because of the pandemic, because they don't, they're not reaping the immediate benefits. But that, that, that comes as a detriment because the more that employers require education, and the more that they require people to have a college degree, the less Latinos are going to have the opportunities to succeed. Yeah. And I kind of think about talking to Eric Garcia. I just think about my own family, like my mom and dad's generation, you know, they came up, they both graduated high school and went to college in the sixties. They were the first generation of either side of my family to ever go to college, either side. And, the, and by default, they're the first generation to not live in abstract poverty going all the way back to the old country, whichever way you want to cut it. 
is part of this just generational shifts where you have, you know, multiple generations of Latinos in the country. Now they're finding their own way. And some of them, whether through technology or just uh, we've talked about the economic growth that's changed the political landscape of it. They're just going, hey, we want more. But the traditional path of getting more, it may not be college. It may be working through government and maybe working through the police force and maybe working through entrepreneurship. Uh, there's a huge mass into the digital realm and new media and things like this. Isn't this just kind of a natural generation shift that all demographics are going to go through? Natural generation shift. And it is a natural thing. Cause like, I think back, so like before I went, before I set foot in a university, I went to community college and a lot of people who were at community college weren't even getting a four, they're to get a four year degree. They were going to get a certificate and like a lot of people were getting degrees in auto technology or they were getting degree, they were getting their nursing certification. Um, and even so, like I went to, so like I grew up in the, I grew up in Chino Hills, California, which was a very suburban, largely white, largely college educated. But I went to community college uh, on the in Chino, which was just right next door. That's where my family ancestry was from. I want to say it's about like fifty percent Latino, something like like not like eat like a quarter of uh, or a fifth had a college education, but it was largely working class. It was largely, uh, you know, uh, you know, there were a lot of mechanics, plumbers. Uh, people who work in trades. And I think that they saw that, you know, you're seeing now that more Latinos might be going to school because they saw that, like, we want more and we want to be able to get a job. But at the same time, I think that what universities need to do to attract them, to attract Latino Latinos is they need to say specifically, okay, this is going to be the thing that allows you to get a job. Even if you don't wind up getting a, de- a job in the degree you specialized in, this is the beneficial thing because it'll, because it'll enable you to move up because a lot of Latinos, I think about even my own family, you know, my, my, my dad would say that like, you know, he's a proud Latino man and he's proud, you know, of his heritage. But he also said that like, you know, our family is a lot like he would say, you know, and, and he did say our family is a lot like the Irish and our family is a lot like Jewish Americans and Italians and Poles and, you, you know, the other people who came from, from, from old countries and then, you know, moved up in the world and, 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 be, and became, you know, American. So I think that, I think that's the other thing is that universities need to do a better job of saying that, okay, Latinos are in this country. A lot of them by, you know, as you saw, the census numbers are showing they're growing by birth, that a college education is a way to, um, is a way to be firmly established and have firm footing. But that is, but I, 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 I'm not seeing that as of right now. Some schools are doing it, but I would like to see it more on, on a widespread and a widespread scale to show that like there's a benefit to going to school. Yeah, talking to Eric Garcia, reporter for The Independent, writer all over the place. Good guy uh, talking to a Latino. When we come back, we're going to get into his day job, Congress, how it's covered, what they're up to, that sort of thing. We'll get into that with Eric Garcia right after this on Hertel. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to Eric Garcia. Okay, your day job, you cover Congress. Uh, you call it the Malarkey Factory. Uh, yes. We we bash on Congress because they deserve it. But take us behind the scenes real quick, because we don't just cover the news here and react to the news. We want to know how the news gets made. Take us behind the scenes. Tell people what it's like to actually cover Congress, what a gaggle is, what it's like to chase Joe Manchin down a hallway to try to get a 30-second soundbite that was the same soundbite from six months ago. Uh, committee hearings. There's a lot going on on the Hill. You have the Senate. You have the House. Take us behind the scenes what it's like to actually try to get information out to the people about Congress. You know, like I, I, I compare it a lot. I was talking to my mom about this. I compare it a lot to whale watching. 
Um, because what happens is you will have like, you can go, because like, especially during committee hearings, especially if it's not something you you specifically want to cover, but you're trying to catch someone, you could wait like an hour, two hours for someone. And I think that that like, especially when I work for a publication like The Independent, which which thrives on high metabolism journalism. And it's very much of that tradition of like, uh, of British tabloids where you have go, go, go. It's hard to sometimes convince people, convince them that like, hey, sometimes you need to, sometimes I need to wait outside for two hours or three hours. So that's one thing. But I think what, what's, what's, what's important to recognize is that the House and the Senate are two completely different animals. Uh, I think people say, well, what's the difference? The Senate is very much more collegial in a lot of ways. Um, one, one of the points that I like to make is that, uh, you know, a full year after uh, the, uh, the the riot at the Capitol, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Josh Hawley were working on legislation to end non-disclosure of forced arbitration on sexual harassment. They don't agree on anything else, but they work. They, by virtue of the Senate being the Senate, they have to work together because there's fewer colleagues. There's there's only a hundred of them because of the filibuster. You, anything you have to do, and Gillibrand has told me this much that you have to work together. The House is it's kind of like junior high. There's factions. There's pettiness. There's there's a there, there's this propensity to just want to fight the other person. There's less of an incentive to work together. And I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that, you know, to your point about about waiting outside for a gaggle, the House can sometimes be in for votes for like two hours, they'll be on the floor. And you just got to sometimes wait for two hours on the floor. Um, I mean, or, or outside, the reporters will all just be waiting outside. And, you know, you can't really leave because if somebody comes out, you have to be there for them. But then you also kind of can't, um, you also kind kind of can't, uh, you know, leave. So like, for example, I have my work phone and I have my cell phone at one point or another, I'm usually charging one or the other uh, in my back at my desk in the gallery, in the press gallery, because I don't want to run out of power when I'm waiting to, you know, talk, when I'm waiting to, you know, record someone. Uh, and then like, you know, sometimes I'm like, cause I've, you know, literally gone to use the bathroom or change my phone or charge my phone. And then like, I, and then like I've missed someone that I need to do that I need to catch. Um, and then, but then like sometimes what happens is that there'll just be a flurry of people coming through that you need to catch. And that, that's just one of those times where you need to be judicious. So for example, I'll give, I'll give you the perfect example is that one day I needed to catch both AOC and Nancy Mace. And that was when uh, Nancy Mace was having her kind of war of words with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And it was kind of a split decision that I was like, I can always catch AOC, but like at the moment I needed to catch Nancy Mace and literally AOC passed by me, but I was like, it sucks. I needed to catch her too, because I wanted to get her thoughts on Lauren Boebert saying something really racist about Ilhan Omar, but I also needed to catch this. So sometimes that's the calculation you make. On the other hand, I think that's why you need to build up sources with staffers because sometimes staffers will tell you, because one of the things about it that I've learned is that members often don't have time to know everything, but their staffers are the ones who learn the most stuff. So that's why it's important to, to, to build up good relationships with staffers. That's why, you know, you can't really do it. During, you can't do it as we couldn't do it as much of the pandemic, but that's why you go to get dinner with them or you go to have drinks with them or lunch with them. But then sometimes so I'll tell you, I'll tell you my favorite, the funniest story that I, one of my funniest stories that I have about, uh, about covering, uh, about covering Congress is what is, this was back in November when there was that negotiation, they were determining whether to pass vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill or not. And all the progressives were huddled in 
this is an important distinction. Everybody thinks that all the offices are on the Capitol. There are actually six different buildings aligning the Capitol. Andrew, you know this, but like on the on the on the House side, there's Rayburn, Cannon, and Longworth, and then on the on the Senate side, there is Russell, uh, Hart, and Dirksen. So we were all waiting in Longworth because progressives were meeting for like three or four hours. And the other thing was, because I have a few members, I have like one member's cell number, so I couldn't text them because they all left their phones out on the table before so that nobody would leak to the press. And then like midway through, you start seeing all their phones light up. And little later on, I learned from like reading another dispatch that it was Pelosi calling them so that she knew they were all in a meeting, but she wanted the first thing that they would see is that they got a, a voicemail from the speaker so that, you know, to put the fear of God into them. So sometimes, sometimes that happens. And then other times, the, the funniest thing is that other times, like stories will fall into your lap. So I don't know. So like a big talk, a thing that's being discussed in Congress is whether to ban members of Congress from trading stocks. Uh, so one time I had this really nuanced, like five minute conversation with Senator John Ossoff, who's the uh, sponsor of the main, of one of the main pieces of legislation. And then after I, we walked all the way back to his office building and on my way back, I caught Senator Tommy Tuberville when, and I had seen in Business Insider, by the way, everybody should be reading Business Insider. Um, you got to subscribe to them, but it's absolutely worth it because they've done a whole thing about which members of Congress have violated the Stock Act and possibly traded with uh, stocks with private information. I saw that Tommy Tuber was a, Bill was a serial violator. So I asked, I was like, Senator, then I realized I need to call him coach because he prefers that. Um, and I was like, um, I was like, what do you think about this? And he says, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. We might as well be sending robots up here. And then like, I tweeted that out. And I'm like, guess which one got the most attention? Was it the, the nuanced conversation with John Ossoff or was it the, uh, <laughs> like, 30 seconds I had with Tommy Tuberville? You can guess which one went uh, got more attention. So, so sometimes that sometimes that happens. You're like, I spend all day slaving over a story, and then, like, that's the, that's the one that gets, you know, the most attention. Yeah, it's the same way in the print world. You'll, you'll write this 3,000 in-depth word piece, and then you do this one little blurb about something that goes viral and gets all the hits. So I feel your pain, buddy. All right, how different is it going to be this year from last year? Last year, of course, a lot of hope. The year was uh, dominated by Build Back Better and that agenda, infrastructure, all that good stuff. How much different is Congress going to feel when it comes back? They're on break right now. When they come back, They've got some heavy stuff to need to do. Uh, of course, the Ukraine situation. And of course, the big bomb, the the biggest thing that ever happens in Washington media, we're going to have a Supreme Court pick coming up. Uh, and it's an election year, a midterm election year. How different is Congress going to feel when they do it this year as opposed to all of last year? So first and foremost, they also still need to do, I mean, I they were negotiating a CR, continuing resolution. So like, it looks like McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell wants there to just be continuing resolution after continuing resolution rather than just fully funding the government for a fiscal year. So that's one thing that's going to be fun is just kicking the can down the road and not passing a full budget. The other thing that's happening is, of course, they have to pass. They're probably going to have to pass a Ukraine's not only a sanction, any legislation on sanctions, because a lot even Democrats are saying that President Biden's sanctions aren't enough. Uh, Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said it's a good start, but it's not enough. So they're going to have to pass some sanctions bills. They're going to have to also pass uh, military aid, some kind of aid to Ukraine, whether it's military aid or foreign aid or some kind of thing to, 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 to support Ukraine. On top of that, I, you know, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court nomination 
The interesting thing that I've noticed is that Republicans are kind of split on it. So Mitch McConnell, literally, he was at an event in Lexington yesterday. He says, I don't have an objection to President Biden picking a Supreme, a black woman for a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who was the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, uh, or, or was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, but now he's ranking, uh, he's one of, Grassley's the ranking member. He said, it's fine, you know, he wants him and Jim Clyburn and Tim Scott and a few other South Carolinians want Biden to pick uh, uh, J. Michelle Childs. Other people wanted to pick Katanji Brown Jackson, who's a former uh who's a former public defender. So that'll be, but what's interesting is that conservatives seem to really not be that interested in like having a kind of, for lack of a better term, a cockfight about it. Like you saw with Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch or even Merrick Garland, because they kind of want, they have the six, three conservative majority. So it would be the equivalent of like putting your starters on when the tournament's in two weeks and you, you know, you're a number one seed. So there, there's not, I don't expect there to be a full on assault because it's replacing Stephen Breyer. It's replacing a liberal. So that's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, you're not going to see any movement. I don't think on BBB by mansion has already said it's dead. Uh, there's talks that the negotiations might not even begin until March again, but by then everybody's going to be campaigning again. I think that by June or July, you're not going to see any progress on anything just because everybody's out campaigning. Uh, and on top of that, so you've got, you know, three Democrats are in ri- at risk of losing three Senate seats, uh, Nevada, uh, Arizona and Georgia. And then Republican and then, you know, Republicans are look pretty likely to take back the House. So I doubt that you're going to see any big changes. The other thing that's going to be interesting to see is that the select committee for January 6th, they're going to start, they said they're going to start having public hearings. I don't know if they're going to start having, when they're going to have it. I've been hearing for the longest time. When are, I've been asking my people, like people I know on the committee, when the hearings are going to start in radio silence. So who knows if they'll actually happen, but they do have their mandate. The mandate is that this ends at the beginning of the next Congress. So who knows what happens. Yeah, Eric Garcia, great insight on Congress. All right, let's project out a little bit. I know we hate to do that because you're a reporter, you deal with facts, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Let's assume that uh, the Republicans do take the House, the Senate's a little more iffy, but if they get the House, I want to ask you, because this is a story that's going to develop later, there's already whispers, there's the backbiting. How secure is Kevin McCarthy if they get the majority? Because we hear a lot of stuff. There's a lot of rumors. He's got all kinds of issues. We know nobody really respects him because a couple of years ago, they literally went with their hat in hand to get, you know, Paul Ryan to take it instead of him. And uh, God bless him. Uh, Walter Jones kneecapped him the first time. But we'll talk about that story some other time. Rest in peace, Walter Jones. But I just because they get the majority, I think they could have a real mess on their hands right off the jump, just in the leadership and the and the those sorts of fights that come once you take over the majority. Yeah. So I think one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of conservatives got mad at uh, McCarthy for not holding the line on infrastructure. That was really the beginning. And then a lot of them, there was a lot of frustration with the fact that he couldn't keep his caucus in line on voting for the creation of a bipartisan commission for January 6th. There is a lot of feeling that McCarthy just, let me put it this way, that's when he gave his kind of nine hour floor, long floor speech the night that the House was supposed to pass Bill Back Better, that was for an audience of one. That was for that was for former President Donald Trump. And then he got praise from Trump after that. But that doesn't mean that he's secure. There's still talk about Steve Scalise might leapfrog him. There's talk about even someone like Jim Banks, who is chairman of the Republican Study Conference, uh, 
uh, study conference. I forget that. I think that's their term. Uh, Republican study committee. There's talk that he might leapfrog him. Uh, there is not, I think that the, the feeling with McCarthy is that he's just not somebody who's up to the job. The upside for him is that he has a lot of friends. A lot of people like him. Uh, you know, he recruited a lot of those initial 2010 Republicans who won the majority back in the Republican wave year. But the question is whether they like him enough to keep him there uh, and whether or not they think that he is up to the task of uh, negotiate of, of, you know, blocking anything that President Biden wants to do, blocking anything that, you know, if the Senate, if, say, the Senate stays Democratic, you know, blocking anything Chuck Schumer wants and really um, enacting or put, putting forward a conservative agenda. I don't think that there is, I think it's, I think it's still an up the year. The difference between him and I think Paul Ryan and John Boehner was McCarthy has made a better, more concerted effort to reach out to Jordan and, and the Freedom Caucus guys, whereas Boehner hated them too much to ever want to deal with them. And Ryan could never satisfy them. It seems like like McCarthy has brought them more into the fold. Something to keep an eye on. We always like to try to stay ahead of the news a little bit, not just reaction to it. We appreciate it. Eric Garcia, always enjoy catching up with you, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow your coverage and also follow your other and make sure you pitch that amazingly great book, uh, We're Not Broken. It is certified by Trish Donaldson, my mother, former special education teacher who refers to you as that nice young man. Tell folks about the book, your social media, and where they can follow you. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Eric M. Garcia. You can follow, read, read my reporting at The Independent, or you can read my columns at MSNBC. You can also buy my book, We're Not Broken, Change the Autism Conversation. The paperback edition comes out May 31st. Uh, deals with a lot of other stuff that we weren't able to go into uh, in the hardcover edition. There's an afterword about uh, the COVID vaccine panic and how it was linked to the anti-vaccine panic of the 1990s with autism. Uh, there's a lot, so so there's a lot of good bits there. But the hardcover is also a, a lot of great, a lot of fun things. So uh, it's always fun talking with you, Andrew. Uh, and and thanks very much for having me. Yeah, we're gonna have you back home because we're gonna get into that anti-vax autism connection one of these days because there's some really untoward wicked stuff in there we're going to deal with eric garcia fantastic my friend i really appreciate your time i hope you heal up thanks for playing her today buddy thanks man anytime uh you know we always like to end our herd tells with a little bit of an uplifting story this is a good one let's go to portsmouth new hampshire downtown gonna go down on fleet street uh, it's no secret downtown visitors know when they're overcome with late night hunger. Arlene Malkin is the one to visit a line cook at the Portsmouth acclaimed Gillies Diner. Boy, I love diner food. God bless shift work diners. There's nothing like going to the diner at 3 a.m. when you got off of shift work. Malkin is Fleet Street's queen of the graveyard street, flipping burgers, whipping up sandwiches, and grilling hot dogs for late night customers since joining the staff in 2013. But now, nine years after coming to Gillies, Malkin, 60 needs help paying for her medical bills for past cancer treatments with more on the horizon. The city's restaurant community is rallying to help. I love stories like this. Listen, Mollican, a survivor of bladder cancer, said she's due to have a biopsy next week at Wentworth Douglas Hospital after doctors recently discovered a mass roughly the size of a grapefruit near her bladder. Mollican, who is unassured, said she has not received state aid and the sole source of her income is from Gillies. She's worried about mounting bills and a number of local eateries and bars are setting up promotional deals at their businesses to donate. I am blown away by all this, she said Tuesday, Thursday morning inside Gillies. I don't like asking for help. I never do. It's not me. I'd rather work 60 hours a week and make my own money. God, I love people like this. 
God bless them. Staff at the Wilder, the Portsmouth Brewery, Portsmouth Feed Company, and Legends Billards and Tavern were among the first to say they will set up deals to benefit Malkin. Emily Hill, the chief executive at the Wilder, said they have been many nights where she'll leave work and grab food at Gillies prepared by Malkin. We need to do this for Arlene because she's such a staple in Portsmouth and she's just awesome. Hill said that both the Wilder and the Legends will be offering the same promotion, 10% off all beverage sales every Wednesday this month to be given to Mullican. Other city businesses, including Liars Bench Beer Company, will be donating merchandise that will be raffled off at the end of February. Only those that show proof that they had already donated to an online fundraiser for Mullican can enter the raffle. Portsmouth Brewery General Manager Jeff Furbish said the business will be releasing an Imperial Stout in early March. She's getting her own beer. We need to get Burt Lyko on here. He can explain this stuff to her. He's our beer expert. For New Hampshire Beer Week, which actually runs for nine days between March 5th and March 13th, the brewery will donate a dollar from every sale of the Stout to Mullican, as well as hold other fundraisers. Quote, we are all busy. We're just recovering from COVID. But when we heard the call, we are all going to chime in, Furbis said. I love these kind of stories. I hate anybody that has to fight cancer. But it's always good to see a community, especially people in a, in a service sector or a business sector that's kind of tight knit and everybody knows each other and everybody's competing against each other, like the restaurant service industry. When your peers step up to take care of you, that tells you a lot about the type of person involved. God bless her in her fight. We hope she makes full recovery. If you're in the Portsmouth area, find a way to help out, donate, might even get you a good beer out of it. It's up to you. That'll do it for her tell today. We always appreciate your patronage. You give us the most valuable thing you have, your time. Continue to share us on your social media. We don't pay for advertising. This is all word of mouth, and we have grown with it because we think we do good work. And you're telling folks to make sure you're sharing us on your social media. We sure appreciate it, whether you're watching on the YouTube and on the Facebook for the Big Talker Network feeds. By the way, the Facebook page has been updated. It looks fantastic. Make sure you check that out. If you watch on Facebook, make sure to share it. Any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, or the podcast aggregators, we see those as well. If you do an overcast or something like that, we sure appreciate it. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll finish out the week strong. Heard Tell Show, we so appreciate you wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow on Heard Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.